Dear friends in Christ, grace and peace are yours in your crucified, risen, and ascended Savior, Jesus Christ. We consider for our sermon this morning a single verse from the Old Testament from the book of 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 27. But will God really dwell on the earth? In truth, the heavens, even the highest heaven, cannot contain you. How much less this house which I have built. This is the word of God before us today. May God bless us as we consider God's glory above all others. That glory that is complete in Christ's victory and that glory that is continued in our ministry. The single verse for our study this morning was spoken by King Solomon when he dedicated the temple that he had built. Solomon's temple was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was constructed during the height of Israel's prosperity and power as a nation. It was sort of the crowning achievement of their wealth and their glory as a nation. The planning for the temple, however, began long before Solomon was around. It started with King David. David himself wanted to build a temple, but the Lord told him it wasn't in his plan for him. It was going to be his son. So it took many years for this to take place. It took a lot of effort, a lot of diligence, a lot of planning. There was no doubt that the building of the temple, the moment of its dedication, its purpose for the people of God for years to come, was one of the most important parts of God's people in the Old Testament. It's one of the unique identifiers of the nation of Israel. One of the things that set it apart from the rest of the world, not just in how the temple was constructed or what it was, but in its purpose for the people. Part of the allure of Solomon's temple was its unmatched quality and wealth. To help put it in perspective, I put together some facts about the temple to help you understand really what it was a bit more. The sanctuary part of the temple kind of what we would be in right now, the sanctuary of our church, it was very similar actually in size to our church building. The Bible tells us that Solomon's temple in the sanctuary was 30 feet wide by 60 feet long. And I took a tape measure this week and measured our sanctuary and from the back of the narthex to the altar is 65 feet. And the width of our church is 35 feet. So the sanctuary part of Solomon's temple was just a little bit smaller than our sanctuary. So in the grand scheme of things, Solomon's temple wasn't some huge building that was far bigger than the others. What made it special was more than just its size. But it helps you understand what it would have been like to be in that temple very similar to the size of our sanctuary today. Here's where you get to see the worth of Solomon's temple, though. The inside of that sanctuary, and the ceiling was not vaulted like ours, but the walls went up and it had a flat ceiling. The entire interior of the sanctuary was overlaid with solid gold. It was constructed of wood, but over the top of it, they poured gold across all of it. When scholars estimate the time period and the size of Solomon's temple and the cost of gold at that time in the world, 
Some have estimated that it was in the range of $200 billion worth of gold just inside the sanctuary. That's not counting the other elements of the temple, like the silver that was included in various parts of the temple and the precious gems and the cedars that were part of the temple. Just the gold itself came to that amount. Another element of Solomon's temple was that he enlisted his friend, King Hiram of the nation of Tyre, to send down cedar wood for construction of the temple. Now, we're pretty used to large trees in our, our, our area, even cedar trees. It's not that strange of a thing. But for Israel, this was quite a commodity. This was quite a value. And so for Solomon to be able to have King Tyre send this great load of cedar wood down to construct the temple was nothing short of miraculous. And the way that they did it was even greater. It's estimated by some historians that Hiram enlisted 10,000 workers to harvest the wood in his forest. And what they would do is they would take the harvested wood, the logs, and float them down the coast of the Mediterranean, down to the port of Joppa where the Israelites would pick them up. The Bible gives us some perspective on how much Solomon valued this gift because it, we're told in 1 Kings, just a couple of verses after our sermon text, that Solomon gifted Hiram with 20 cities as payment for the cedars that were given. Overall, the temple was unmatched in the world. People from all around the world traveled to see its glory. And it existed for almost 400 years as the center of worship for the Israelites before it was destroyed by the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar. These are just a few of the amazing details of Solomon's temple to help us grasp the significance of the verse that we have before us today. When it finally came time for that point where the temple would be dedicated, where it would be put to use for the worship of God, that the people had waited so long for, that they, the kingdom had extended so many resources toward, it was quite a moment for Solomon and for the people of Israel. But it's interesting that as this moment finally arrives, after all of this work in the temple, as Solomon puts it, that wasn't even what was most important about the day. After all the work that Solomon had done, after all the billions of dollars worth of materials that were spent, after all the planning and consideration and effort, the way that Solomon speaks of the temple seems to be that it is a relatively insignificant thing. He says, how much will this house that I have built be able to contain you, God, when even the heavens can't contain you? This is because Solomon was comparing the building of God to who God really is. And Solomon understood the true purpose of worship. Now, theoretically, when we look at this, it's a simple thing. We know that worship about God is not about the building. It's not about how great it looks. It's not about what it feels like. It's not about how the senses are aligned with what seems to be happening in worship. It's not about any of those personal things. It's about coming closer to God through his word. Now, theoretically, we know that, but practically, it's a lot harder to practice that. It's a difficult distinction for us to make. We so often judge the value of our worship by the experience that we gain there. Now, how was the music? What is the setting like? 
How about the people around me? What about the way that the pastor preaches? We judge the value of our time here by so many other things, but not really so much what it really is about. Many people today have forgotten, even us at times, the lesson that Solomon speaks about in our verse. Worship is not about how it makes us feel or how valuable we deem it in comparison to the other things of our lives. It's not about whether the building is magnificent or how much money went into building it. True worship is about being brought closer to God. And if the heavens themselves created by God cannot obtain or hold God's power, how will any human building do so? So Solomon's lesson tells us to be wise and cautious about how we estimate the value of our worship. We think of Solomon's temple and this connection today on Ascension Sunday because we're really met with the same distinction in that story. Here we have Jesus, the Son of God made man, visible for all to see in his physical body that he took on, that he allowed to be killed and that he brought back to life. Here we have that Jesus going back to heaven. Now, on Ascension Day, Heaven is where we would expect God to be. During the time of Jesus' life, when he was here on earth, it was the fact that he was a man who claimed to be God that stumped the most people. They couldn't understand, if you're really God, why are you here just like me? Why do you look just like me? Why do you go through the same things as me? I can't understand that. And for far too many people who even got the chance to see Jesus, they would not accept him as God because they couldn't reason in their minds how it could be. Heaven is where we expect God to be. But for those who know Jesus by faith, for those who know what he did on earth, what it means for our lives, for those who take into account the entire story and its purpose, what seems to be natural starts to feel foreign. That's where the disciples were as they witnessed Jesus ascending back into heaven. We read that account in Luke and how they went back with joy, but we're also told in the other gospel accounts that they were perplexed. And even an angel had to come down and tell them, hey, move along, keep going. Don't stay here looking up. You've got work to do. The disciples were puzzled because for all the time that they had spent with Jesus, now it seemed strange to them that he would go back to heaven. They were used to God being with them. It surely felt like there was more to be done from the disciples' perspective, too. Hadn't Jesus just arrived? It was only three years that he performed his ministry. Wasn't there more to be done? Why is he leaving now once everything seems to be put in place? Those are the kind of questions that individuals who really know Jesus start to have when we think about the ascension. We don't think so much to ourselves that God belongs in heaven. We think God belongs here on earth with me. After everything Jesus did, why does he go back home to heaven? The ascension of Jesus is always that reminder of what he came to do, for he ascended with a purpose. And that's why we remind ourselves, though we may be questioning ourselves in the same way the disciples did, where is Jesus? Why doesn't he come down? What's taking him so long? Why doesn't he help me with the work before me? Why did he go back to heaven? Though we have those questions, Jesus explains to us in his word why he went back home. 
Peter talked to the crowd on Pentecost Sunday, which we'll be celebrating next weekend. Peter said on Pentecost in Acts 2, Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, Jesus poured out this which you now see and hear. Peter talks as if the ascension was something that had to happen, that God planned it. That the Holy Spirit works through it. Notice the Trinitarian emphasis of this single verse. This one verse is a proof passage for the Trinity of God. You have here the Son rising and going back into heaven. You have that being part of the Father's will. And you have the Holy Spirit working through that. What Peter's telling us through that passage is that the ascension of Jesus was essential to his work to continue to equip us for the work that is before us. That promise that Peter first talked about was realized on Pentecost as the Holy Spirit came to the church in very visible ways. God was sending a clear message. Through the ascension of Jesus, he continues to work through believers. Christ is no longer physically present, preaching, teaching, performing miracles, interacting directly in our lives, we might say. Rather, Christ is present through his word and sacrament. He is working through Christians to guide them through his word, to equip them to minister, to encourage them when they're down. And Christ provides opportunities for his word to take root. Christ does all this, as Peter says, and as we confess, at the right hand of God the Father in heaven. Through his death and resurrection, Jesus returned to heaven in complete power and glory to now govern the work of his church through his word and through us who use that word. None of this would have taken place if Christ had not ascended. Jesus explained moments before his death to his disciples in John chapter 16. He said, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. The ascension of Jesus marked that transition from the time that he was leading the ministry here on earth to the time that he was leading it in heaven. And Jesus says the difference there was that he would send the Holy Spirit to the disciples through the word. Previously, the Holy Spirit was able to work through the disciples and through the ministry of Jesus directly. You've got the Son of God there on earth. Obviously, the Holy Spirit's going to be working through his word and his work. But now Jesus says, I'm going home to heaven and I'm equipping you by sending you the Holy Spirit. And you don't have to be afraid that I'm now gone. You don't have to be worried that I'm leaving because it means the Holy Spirit will come to you more directly. And we see that in the disciples, don't we? We see the new courage and boldness that they took on after the ascension of Jesus. They didn't cower back in fear. That was what happened when Jesus was on earth. Because they trusted more fully in his word and they relied on him more fully by faith and not by sight. And the Holy Spirit works today through the same gospel and word and sacrament, which are the very centerpieces of our worship today. You see, just as Solomon declared, it was never about the temple building itself. So also with Jesus' work here on earth, with his life, with his ministry, it was never just about here. There was a greater purpose behind both. 
In 1 Kings, Solomon went on to explain what worship was really about. It's not the building. It's not the gold. It's not the cedars. It's not the cost. It was not about man containing God, essentially, but about God coming to man. Solomon talked about God coming to man in grace, in mercy, in forgiveness, even in the Old Testament. Solomon declared later in chapter 8 in his prayer to the Lord, When we sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin, and you become angry and deliver us to the enemy and take us captive to the land of the enemy far or near, then hear in heaven your dwelling place, our prayer and supplication, and maintain our cause, and forgive us who have sinned against you, and all our transgressions which we have transgressed against you, and grant us compassion. The temple was merely the outward form. The temple was merely the tool to be used for people to receive God's forgiveness. And the same is true of our church building and everything else that comes with our worship today. It's meant to serve us with Jesus Christ. It's not the purpose, though. And it's not here to contain God for ourselves. God gave the same message through Jesus, his son, on Ascension Day. It was not time for the disciples to reign with Jesus here on earth. Earth was not the final frontier in this sense. It was not time to set up the tabernacles like Peter wanted to at the transfiguration. It was not time to just bottle up this moment of good feeling and stay there. There was direction. There was purpose. There was movement from God. The message was not one of stopping, but rather continuing on. Continuing to proclaim the gospel truth. And so Jesus told his disciples, Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. The work of the ministry continues today in our age because the need has been fulfilled by Jesus. He wants us to be moving forward, sharing the message of the gospel, not because there's anything left that we have to do, but because of the great joy of having the privilege to proclaim this gift to others and share in the same eternal life with them through Jesus. Because Jesus' mission on earth was completed, there was no more need for him to be here. Just like at some point, as grand and powerful and glorious as Solomon's temple was, it faded away and it no longer exists. But just because Jesus is not here on earth with us does not mean he is absent. He also promised his disciples, Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus remains with us in our work, not in this building, not in the people who are here, not in the great beauty of cost or what we do with our ministry, not even in the thoughts of our mind and the intentions of our heart or the works of our hands. But Jesus is with us today through his word of promise. The very same thing he pointed his disciples' focus to, the very same thing that Solomon pointed the focus to when he dedicated the temple, and the very same focus of our worship today. As Solomon declared, we are not here to capture God. No such place even the heavens could contain him, how much lesser our building. But we are here to be brought closer to God and all of his blessings. And those blessings include moral guidance for our lives, admonition when we stray, correction when we say the wrong thing, 
or when we treat others wrongly. Mercy and forgiveness when we transgress. Encouragement when we're overcome with fear and uncertainty. And yes, a community of believers to support and uplift one another. When we think of ascension, we wonder, what's more surprising? That God would come down from heaven in human form, or that God would care about humans so much from heaven? In the end, I suppose the answer to that question doesn't matter as much, but it shows us the different sides of the way that we see Jesus now that he's come to earth for us. God has given us this dwelling, this sanctuary, to use, to teach and remind us of his most important work, saving sinners by his grace. And it is faith in Jesus that saves us, and faith comes to us through his word. Therefore, as we live in our Savior's name and as we continue to minister in his name, let us use that word that unites and brings us closer to him. To his glory and to his honor. Amen. Please rise.